Well, have you noticed how quickly our society moves straight from Halloween to Christmas? It seems like the Christmas stuff keeps coming out earlier and earlier, and now it's like on the first day of November, the day after Reformation Day, November 1st, where all the scary stuff goes away and all of the winter wonderland stuff comes out. Like our nation doesn't even acknowledge Thanksgiving anymore, and we go straight from Halloween to Christmas. And maybe you've been working yourself up for Christmas for the better past of the, of the last couple of months, all the decorating, the hanging of lights, and the rearranging of furniture so you can fit all of that Christmas stuff in your house perfectly. Uh, maybe you've been working hard to get all your family pictures done with the perfect outfit, to send out the perfect Christmas card, and you finally got that done and delivered. Maybe you've been making Christmas lists and doing all of your Christmas shopping so diligently to find the best deal and the best price, the best gift for your loved ones. You've been wrapping your presents, and then if you have a toddler or a dog in the house, you've rewrapped many presents over this holiday season, and you've been getting ready, and you can't wait for Christmas. You've gone to all the Christmas parties, and you've attended more white elephant gift exchanges than you care to mention. You've been baking Christmas cookies and Christmas candies and Christmas pies. You've been driving around looking at all the Christmas lights. And just when you thought you were done, you remembered you still have some last-minute Christmas shopping to do. Now, you are finally ready for the big day to arrive. And it'll just be a few more preparations tonight, and then bam, tomorrow morning, Christmas Day. It's finally here, the best day of the year. If there's anything like our house, your kids or your grandkids will come bounding into your room early on Christmas morning, and you'll pretend like you're still asleep as they bounce up and down on your bed saying, Mom, Dad, let's go open Christmas presents. Can't wait for Christmas. Don't you love it? Don't you love everything about just venturing into the family room and enjoying Christmas together as a family? And then what? Well, Christmas will be over, and you will have to clean your house, and you will have to make some returns, and you'll have to put away all the decorations, and you'll spend the better part of Christmas Day putting together stuff for your kids if they're little, right? And then you'll ha not be able to watch any more Christmas movies after tomorrow. You won't be able to see any more Hallmark movies. Whatever will you do with your time? If you're not careful, you'll have to fight against those Christmas blues, or what is officially called by the world of psychology, post-holiday syndrome. Happens to people every year, right? The holiday season can often be an emotional roller coaster. Many people go into a weird feeling or depression after all of the holiday hoopla winds down and find it difficult to function in their normal daily routine. Holiday blues... Holiday depression or post-Christmas blues, these commonly used terms depict a mental distress occurring after the winter holiday season. Post-holiday syndrome can occur because of a variety of factors. Perhaps the holidays were not as festive or celebratory as you expected or your plans fell through or your expectations simply just weren't met. Maybe there is a guiltiness of spending too much money or overeating. Also, you might feel like the letdown is more than you can handle as you'll have to wait a whole nother year before Christmas rolls around again. So my question to you this morning is, what will you be doing 40 days after Christmas? Will you be experiencing the Christmas blues 40 days after Christmas? It's important for us to realize that the, Christ, the, the uh, Christmas that we celebrate as Christians, that our excitement doesn't come ultimately from the tinsel and lights. Our excitement doesn't come from the presents wrapped around the tree. Our excitement doesn't come from Santa or mistletoe. Our excitement comes from Jesus. And the good news about that is our excitement that comes from Jesus can last all year round. There's no such thing as the Christmas blues if your focus during the Christmas season is on Christ. Your focus is on other things, and it can be a huge letdown. But if your focus is on Christ, then you can receive a spiritual blessing every day that you spend with Jesus. Just a couple of months ago, I was having lunch with John Nuburu. Maybe you've met him from 
uh, Uganda, uh, and uh, I was having lunch with him over at the master's cafeteria, and I said, John, how's it going? How do you like America? How are your classes? How's your homework? How's everything doing? How do you like the cafeteria? And he said, Adam, I love the cafeteria. When I eat in here, it's like every day is Christmas. <laughs> and I thought, man, what a great attitude, right? I know some other master's university students who don't say that, but he was like overwhelmed. Every day is like Christmas. And I thought, what a great attitude that we really should all have every day. And we can't have that feeling if we're focusing on God's love poured out on us through Christ. Every day is like Christmas if you focus on God's love for you and his spiritual gifts to you and his constant presence with you. You know, there was a whole lot of hoopla going on around that first Christmas as well. You have Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem to have a baby. There, of course, was no room for them in the end. You have the shepherds who saw the angels bringing good news of great joy. You have the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But have you ever wondered what it was like for Mary and Joseph 40 days after Christmas? Well, this morning, we're going to look at exactly that. This morning, I want to share with you three profound occurrences that happened exactly 40 days after Christmas. And they're all in this text that I've already read to you this morning. The first one is this. Number one, Mary and Joseph followed the laws of purification. Here's your first blank if you do want to take some notes this morning. We're talking here about the circumcision of Jesus. That's right. Leave it up to your pastor to talk about circumcision on Christmas Eve. But that's what's going on in this text as we read here in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he, that is Christ, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. According to the writings of Moses in the book of Genesis, every newborn son was to be circumcised on the eighth day. In fact, listen to what we read in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So my covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now, I can think of at least three reasons why circumcision is something that God required his people to do. Number one, circumcision did afford some health benefits, which reduces the potential of infection. This, along with other dietary and sanitary regulations, were important to God and a way to minimize health risks as well as to just live differently from the world. Number two, circumcision was the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. This was a promise that God had made with Abraham to give him land, seed, and blessing. And this removal of the foreskin was a permanent reminder to the nation that God would fulfill his promise. And this mark of circumcision became a part of Israel's national identity. Number three, and most relevant to us today, would be that circumcision serves as a spiritual object lesson of how we all need to be freed from the filth of our sin. Circumcision is meant to be a physical symbol of the spiritual cleansing that needs to happen in the heart of each in every person. In fact, here's how the Bible mentions it in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, neither is circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what we see is the whole point of circumcision is to really point to that spiritual reality that every person has a heart that is wicked and evil. Every person is a sinner before God. And what needs to happen is our hearts need to be changed. And so the outward sign of circumcision, while it did point to the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment that God would give to Israel as a nation, also has spiritual implications for each one of us today that we need our hearts circumcised. And listen to what Stephen said, the martyr, in his famous sermon in Acts 7, right before he was stoned to death, he said to the Jews, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so he confronts the Jews saying, hey, look, even though you've been circumcised externally, if you have not had your heart circumcised by the Spirit of the living God, then you have rejected Christ and you have no life in you. Paul writes the same thing to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's reminding them it's not about all the outer rituals and outer forms of obedience necessarily that brings you to Christ. It's about the heart. And we need to be circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God. Read the same thing in Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we see here an interesting thing that uh, all along circumcision was to point to the need that we all have as human beings to have a heart change. And this heart change can only happen when you're redeemed or circumcised by Christ. Only Christ can remove away the old flesh. Only Christ can move away your stony heart. Only Christ can dispel all of your unbelief. Only Christ can bring you in to a personal relationship with the Father. And following God is not about external obedience with the wrong heart and the wrong motive, but following God is rather about external obedience with the right heart and with the right motive. And the mark of a true Christian is about loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that can only happen if your heart has truly been circumcised. And Jesus cleanses us from the inside with a spiritual circumcision that changes us and marks us as followers of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 23, 25, and 26, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. And so we understand here again that the idea of circumcision all points to an internal cleansing by the blood of Christ, that we could be free of our sin, that we could be free of our, our, our condition of being slaves to our sin and rather be slaves to Christ. And some of this starts to beg the question, though, why did Jesus get circumcised? If it's to remove sin from our hearts, why would the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who never had a sinful heart, who never committed one single sin, why would he be circumcised? If Jesus was here on earth to usher in the new covenant, to move us away from Old Testament ritual into a New Testament emphasis of the heart, why was Christ circumcised? Well, the answer is the same as the answer, of us, uh, the answer that's asked, why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized for the same reason he was circumcised. Why, why did Jesus get baptized if there was no picture of being made new? since he was already perfect and without sin. I think the, the Apostle Paul answers the question well when he writes in Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent 
forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. You see, Christ was born as a human being, fully God, fully man. He was born as a Jew. He was born to a woman, the Virgin Mary, and he was born under the law, which means he was responsible to obey the law perfectly in order to be that perfect sacrifice for you and I so that we could be redeemed. He, he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so when the time had come, God sent Jesus into this world as the second Adam who would live a perfect life and obey God's word perfectly. You see, the first representation of the human race, Adam, in the garden fell. He was a failure to obey God's law perfectly. And so God sent a second Adam in the person of Jesus who obeyed God's law perfectly. And because of his perfect obedience to be baptized and his perfect obedience to be circumcised, Jesus could rightly be our substitute. This is how it's written in Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And so the idea behind Jesus getting baptized is he needed to fulfill all righteousness. And the idea behind him getting circumcised here on the eighth day is so that Jesus could fulfill all righteousness. And so this is why Christ came on the eighth day from his faithful mom and dad who brought him to be circumcised so that he could fulfill all righteousness. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. Jesus was circumcised so he could impute his perfect obedience to our accounts and that we could be made righteous by his righteousness. Not only was Jesus circumcised, but we also read here that he was given the name Jesus which was given to him by the angel Gabriel. But the name Jesus, you might be aware, is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua in the Old Testament, the same meaning for the Greek word Jesus in the New Testament. It's a common name, a regular name amongst Hebrew people. Jesus was the name that was given to him. It means Yahweh saves. It means Jehovah is salvation. And what an appropriate name for him who came to save his people from their sins. And so may our Lord's submission in circumcision, this, this submission that he did to an ordinance which he did not need for himself, may it be a lesson to us all in our daily lives. Let us endure much rather than increase in offense to the gospel in any way. Let us never hinder the cause of God to use our lives and our spirit-empowered obedience to point others to the righteousness of Christ. May we seek to obey all of God's Word in a way that will adorn the gospel and cause others both to question and to trust in the righteousness that only Christ can provide. On the eighth day, Christ was circumcised. But that's not all that's going on here. We also see in this passage, your next blank says, the purification of Mary the purification of Mary. Look at verse 22. And when the time came, so we understand that part of this was the time for Jesus' circumcision, but part of this in verse 22, the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you that just as circumcision was an important way to keep God's law and to point to the spiritual circumcision of the heart, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, was also intended to do the same thing. You see, Mary and Joseph were godly people who wanted to obey God's law fully. And so that's why they had Christ circumcised. But that's also why Mary is coming to the temple at this time, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, to be cleansed. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. 
Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So all this is to remind us that our lives are tainted by sin. And we must be cleansed by the blood. Not by the blood of a bull or goat, but by the blood of Jesus in order to be worthy to truly come into the presence of the Lord. And so Mary was called by Moses as a Hebrew woman to go through this ritual of cleansing 33 days after the circumcision, where it would be literally the 40th day where she was now cleansed and ready to come into the temple for this dedication. And so we've got to realize, you might just wonder again, like, what, why is this all happening? Like, why 33 days? And I thought having a baby is a beautiful thing. Aren't children a blessing from the Lord? And the answer is, yes, it is. But it's also a reminder that the human race has been cursed by sin. And every baby that is born is a sinner in need of grace. And so Mary, instead of questioning this ritual, chose to be obedient. Joseph was also obedient in shepherding his family not to come to the temple until the time for her purification was over. And this is where we got the title of the sermon today, by the way. If you count these days, it equals up to the 40th day where Jesus is now being presented there at the temple. And we could just pause here for a moment and be reminded that the birth of Christ affects every day of our lives. It's not just the day that Christ was born that affected Mary. His birth also affected her life 40 days after Christmas. And the same is true for you and me. It's not just Christmas morning that ought to affect our lives as we come together to worship the babe Jesus Christ. We ought to consider every day as holy to the Lord. And Christmas is just an opportunity for us to really bask in the beauty of all of these passages, but it really ought to be something that continues in our life every single day. And so we could ask ourselves, what will you be doing 40 days after Christmas? Will you be depressed with the Christmas blues? Or will you have been moved on in your life seeking to honor Christ and to obey Him? What, what, what will your life look like 40 days after Christmas? What will your life look like 40 months after Christmas? What will your life look like 40 years after this Christmas? I, I hope that your life will look like an obedient servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who remembers that His birth has implications for your obedience throughout your lifetime. And in addition to Mary's purification was also the idea of presenting Jesus to the Lord. This is kind of like our present-day baby dedication services. It's simply an opportunity for parents to present their little ones to the Lord and ask for His blessing in their lives. You see there at the end of verse 22 that they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. And this kind of leads us to your next sub-point here. C says the redemption according to the law of the Lord. And so we understand here that this is a requirement, that Christ be circumcised, that Mary be purified. And now we see one more aspect here in verses 23 through 24, that there needs to be a redemption according to the law of the Lord. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, the firstborn was to be consecrated to the Lord, and we read about that in Exodus. If you want to turn there, let's look at one more time at Exodus and then Leviticus 12, but here's what we're seeing here. Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast is mine. It's a reminder for us that just in a similar way of the first fruits were offered to the Lord, the first child was to be consecrated or set apart as unto the Lord. It's a reminder that your children are not your own. You're a steward in parenting to watch over your kids and point them to Christ. They don't ultimately belong to you. They're to be dedicated to the Lord. And the setting apart of the firstborn was not for priestly service because the priests came forth from the tribe of Levi. Mary and Joseph were not surrendering Jesus to priestly service since he was from the tribe of Judah, but rather they are dedicating his life to God. 
And we read about that more specifically in the Leviticus 12 passage, picking up in verse 6. Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8 says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and another for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, this is exactly what's going on with Mary as she's coming now to the temple. All of this shows that Mary and, Joseph's ha- have, Mary and Joseph have a righteous commitment to keep God's law. It also shows that Mary and Joseph were poor, Since they couldn't afford a lamb, they brought uh, these two turtle doves or two pigeons that you could offer. And one was for the burnt offering and one was for the sin offering. The burnt offering was for the sins that you committed intentionally and that you committed these sins and you needed a full atonement of that burnt offering sacrifice unto the Lord. The sin offering was for the sins that you unintentionally committed And they were also in need of being atoned for. This could be the unintentional sins of commission, something you did unintentionally, or omission, something that God required you to do that you didn't do, needed a sin offering, and they needed to be covered by the blood of Christ. And so there's two pictures here of the burnt offering and the sin offering, sins of of intention and sins that were never intended. According to Numbers chapter 3, in addition to the offerings was a redemption tax of five shekels per child that would help support the temple and the Levitical priestly office. And so in order to obey all of God's law, Mary and Joseph would have paid this five shekel tax in order to redeem Jesus, their firstborn child. Well-known commentator William Hendrickson takes special notice of this when he writes, on this 40th day, the Redeemer himself was redeemed. Strange as it may sound, the statement is true. Of course, he was not redeemed in the sense in which he was going to redeem his people, for he was, is, and ever will remain sinless. In fact, he is the fountain of all virtue. Yet being his mother's firstborn son and belonging to the tribe not of Levi but of Judah, he had to be exempted from official temple service by the payment of five shekels of silver. And so we see Mary and Joseph may not have had a lot of money, But they were somehow able to come up with five shekels, which is about one month's labor. So whether you make a lot of money or a little money, a whole salary, month's salary is pretty good tax that they were able to give and contribute for the keeping of the law to redeem Jesus. And so it's an amazing story here. Mary may have been poor, but she was obedient. Joseph may not have been Jesus's earthly father, but he sure made sure that his family obeyed God's law. They may not have been able to afford a lamb, but they brought Jesus, who was the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And I appreciate how J.C. Ryle comments on this poverty as well. He writes this, quote, poverty, it is manifest, was our Lord's portion upon earth from the days of his earliest infancy. He was nursed and tended as a babe by a poor woman. He passed the first 30 years of his life on earth under the roof roof of a poor man. We need not doubt that he ate a poor man's food and wore a poor man's apparel and worked a poor man's work and shared in all poor man's troubles. Such condescension is truly marvelous. Such an example of humility surpasses man's understanding. Well, I don't know about you, but I just appreciate seeing the, 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 the heart of Mary and Joseph to obey God as fully as they were able with this humble obedience. And this example really makes me want to be a more faithful parent and to dedicate my children to the Lord and to offer whatever sacrifice I can in order to commit my family to Christ. Great example of what Mary and Joseph are doing here. And that's the first profound occurrence that happened 40 days after Israel. These second two are just as profound. Number two, we're looking now at Simeon, who anticipated the consolation of Israel. 
verses 25 to 35, here what we're seeing is a patient and a spirit-led man in the midst of a dark time. That's who Simeon was. He was a patient and a spirit-led man in the midst of a dark time. Verse 25 through 27, we read this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law. Now, this particular Simeon is only seen here in all of Scripture. His name, Simeon, means God has heard. And it was a common name in the Bible. Simeon was the name of one of the 12 sons of Jacob that had a tribe named after him. Simeon is the name of one of the ancestors of Jesus. Simeon is the name of one of the teachers out of the church of Antioch. Simeon was also the same as the name Simon that was given to Peter. And this man, Simeon, here in this text, was likely older in age and lived in Jerusalem. He was right there, and Simeon is a, is a man who is described as being righteous and devout. Uh, to be righteous means to be in right standing with God. It means, too, that Simeon, just like Abraham, had Christ's righteousness imputed to him by faith. And to be devout means that he was God-fearing. This word devout also means to be reverent toward God. In classical Greek, this word means cautious. In other words... He was cautious or careful to know God's word and to obey God's commands. That's what it means. You talk about so-and-so is a devout Christian. It means they're cautious to watch their life and to, to know the word of God and to live it out. That's what Simeon was doing. And while the first uh, century typically had a lot of unbelieving Jews that were filled with pride and self-promotion, Simeon was a breath of fresh air and was known as this humble, patient, and kind man. He was a man waiting for the consolation of Israel. Only the Messiah could bring the consolation that Simeon was longing for. That word consolation means comfort, encouragement, the idea of lifting another's spirits. And the only way for Israel or any nation or any person to ever find true consolation is to find it in Christ. You won't find consolation in your finances. You won't find it in your health. You won't find it in your marriage or in your children. You won't find true consolation sitting under the Christmas tree. Right? You only find consolation in Christ. So this is what Simeon's waiting for. He's cautious. He's devout. He's righteous. But he's looking and anticipating and waiting for Jesus Christ. For it had been revealed to him that he would see Christ before he died. And so he's anxious to see this Christ. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think about the filling of the Holy Spirit only happening after Pentecost, but as we're transitioning now into the New Testament, there's a whole lot of spirit-filled language going on here, even in the Gospel of Luke. When we notice how the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, uh, we, we see here that uh, the Holy Spirit, while there is a, a significant difference in the sense the Holy Spirit was with people in the Old Testament, he indwelt people in the New Testament. This was taught by Ezekiel, who says in his prophecy about the new covenant, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone, and I will put my spirit within you. So that's part of the joy of being a New Testament believer. It's not just the Holy Spirit is with you, but the Holy Spirit is in you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we see here uh, in this, in this uh, early Christmas account, though, the Holy Spirit's showing up all over the place. Do you remember uh, this transition from the Old to the New Testament that we read about John the Baptist? It says in Luke 1.15, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Do you remember even a couple of verses later when we see Elizabeth is now, uh, uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, sees Mary, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It happened to Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, John the Baptist's father, after he gives testimony that his name will be John, and his father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we're seeing the Holy Spirit being a theme here in Luke, who wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but wrote Acts. And so we see this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon was a Spirit-filled believer. He was someone who wanted to see Christ. We see here him give this awesome, your next blank, proclamation of praise 
and extraordinary faith as he does finally get to see Jesus. Verses 28 through 32, he took him up in his arms. Can you imagine? You've been waiting your whole life to see Jesus. You've been given a promise that you will see the Messiah before you die. And, and miraculously, God, the Holy Spirit, tells Simeon, there he is. And he picks up this baby and he holds him up and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. This is actually the fifth Christmas hymn in the Gospel of Luke. There's a Christmas hymn that Elizabeth gives after she realizes she's going to be with child with John the Baptist. There's a Christmas hymn that Mary gives after the angel shows up to, to her. There's a Christmas hymn that Zachariah gives after he says his name is John. There's a Christmas hymn sung by the angels that we read about in Luke chapter 2. And now there's this Christmas expression that Simeon gives, the fifth of five Christmas hymns. This hymn is known as the Nunc Dimittis. Forgive my Latin, but that's Latin for... The first two words of the Greek, which says, now depart. So when he says here, he says, you know, he's excited. He holds up the baby and he says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. In the original language, the first two words are now depart, nunc dimitis. And the reason that's significant is it's like Simeon saying, now I can leave. Now I can die. Now I can depart from this world for my eyes have seen Jesus. It's an amazing thing just to think about just that. Like, what is it that you're longing to see that if you saw in this earth, you could say, well, now I can die and go to heaven. You know, maybe this morning you would be like, you know, if I just saw the Dodgers win another World Series, I could die and go to heaven. You know, if I, just, if I was just able to get married, I could die and go to heaven. We could just have a baby. I could die and go to heaven. We could just see our kids come to Christ. I could die and go to heaven. If I could see them graduate and get married and get a job, I could die and go to heaven. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that we have like that, but for Simeon, it was all about Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. If I see Jesus, I'm ready to depart from this world in peace. I could die and go to heaven. Now that he's seen him, Jesus, uh, Simeon makes this proclamation that Jesus is the salvation that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. In other words, God wasn't hiding anything. This has been prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus is now here for all to see. He is a Savior for all classes, for all colors, and for all cultures. He will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. When we look in the Scriptures, we read about the Gentiles are in the darkness, and they're in darkness, and they need a light. So there's a special place that Jesus has. He's the light for the Gentiles. It's kind of like the, the Gentiles, remember, were without the covenants of promise. They were separated from God. But now when Christ came, he brings the Gentiles near and he becomes the light. And for, for the uh, Jews, we see rather he's the glory of Israel. And so the idea is the glory doesn't belong to another prophet. The glory doesn't belong to any of their customs or culture. Their, their glory belongs to Christ. And that's why we read in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. That's pointing to Christ. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so the idea is Jesus brings light for the Gentiles. He brings glory, true glory, for the people of Israel. And then we see that Simeon brings forth in verses 33 to 35, he brings forth a prophecy that will bring forth both joy and heartache. So after this high, high of this Christmas hymn, he then looks to Mary and he says this. They're marveling about it. They're thinking about what he's saying in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed you imagine while they're standing here, marveling, wondering, admiring that Simeon is saying all these things about his, their child? All of a sudden, he says, from this child, many will rise and many will fall. In other words, it's what you do with Jesus that determines your eternal destiny. Jesus says it this way, that he is the stone that the builders rejected. 
and he has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so Simeon's really saying, hey, you're either going to fall or rise based on this baby, based on Jesus Christ. He's the linchpin. He's what it's all about. He's the light and the glory. And because of him, many will fall and many will rise. And oh, by the way, you, Mary, you will have your heart pierced as with a sword as Mary witnessed the crucifixion of her own son on the cross. He says, if he's saying, Mary, you will face great anguish as you face your son, despised and rejected by men. You will experience great sorrow as your son will be afflicted and he will be mocked and he will be flogged and he will be nailed to a cross. You will personally witness this and it will tear your heart apart. And the end result is that it will become clear who is who. It will become clear through what happens to Jesus, those who fall, those who rise, the end of verse 35, it says, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. At that point, you'll know who's with Jesus and who isn't. That's the way we still tell who's, who's who today. Those who are with Christ in the crucifixion and the resurrection of all of Christ are going to rise with Christ. Those who reject Christ and they reject the virgin birth and they reject Christ's perfect sacrifice and they reject his word will fall and be judged by God. And so Simeon's prophecy here is both, one, Jesus is here, and according to how you handle Jesus, you will either rise or you will fall. One final amazing occurrence that happened 40 days after Christmas was number three, Anna thanked God and spoke of the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, your next blank, was a prophetess who devoted her life to the Lord. Look at verses 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. Anna's name comes from the Old Testament Hebrew name Hannah. So just as you had Joshua and Jesus, you have Hannah in the Old Testament Anna in the New Testament. Anna means grace. And like Hannah of the Old Testament, Anna is characterized by fasting and prayer. In the Old Testament, there were five women who were called prophetesses. There was Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Deborah, one of the judges of Israel. Huldah, who had an ongoing prophetic ministry. A fourth was Nodiah, who was known, uh, very little is known about. And the fifth was Isaiah's wife, uh, was described as a prophetess. In the New Testament, only the daughters of Philip were called prophetesses, and this fact that Anna was a prophetess does not mean that she possessed an office or authority or taught the Bible to men. Rather, Anna's function as a prophetess was one of encouragement and acknowledging the fulfillment of the prophecies about Jesus. And what I'd like to take special note of here about Anna is the fact of what she was doing. She's, she's from the lost tribe of Asher, by the way. That's one of the 10 tribes to the north that they felt like maybe never identified again after coming back from the Assyrian conquest. And yet the fact that we notice that she's from the tribe of Asher shows there's a little bit of a remnant of some of these people were still faithful, and Anna was one of those. Then there's this whole discussion about how old she is. There's a, there's a translation uh, debate here about whether the translation that's written is appropriate or if you look at that little superscript over uh, th the fact that she was 84. See that little superscript if you have an ESV? It says, or as a widow for 84 years. And so the possible translations are either she was 84 or she was a widow for 84 years. And if you take the second translation, then it means she's well over 100. Okay? Either way, when the Bible says she's advanced in years, that's kind of a polite way of saying she was old. Right? <laughs> she's an old lady. You got Simeon who's old, Anna, who, who's old, but don't you love the fact that Anna spent these, let's just say, 84 years at the temple where there would have been provision of residential places where the priests could stay overnight and through the day as they did their different things at the temple? Anna, being a widow, would have been cared for by the community, and she literally lived at the temple. She did not depart 
from the temple. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. The idea that, that blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's how Anna was. She's just always there. She's always praising, always praying, fasting regularly. She's worshiping night and day. And not only was Anna a devout woman of the faith, but we also see your next blank. Anna was an active witness for the gospel. Look at verse 38. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, notice what's happening here. She just happens to be at the right place at the right time. Why? Because she lived there. She'd been doing this for 84 years. And she probably was aware of Simeon, another righteous and devout man. And when she saw Simeon talking with Mary and Joseph and blessing the baby Jesus, lifting him up, she might have walked up and heard a little bit about what he was saying. She affirms also what's going on, and she just begins to give thanks that God did keep his promise, that she was able also to see the baby, and then she began to speak of him. She's an active witness for Christ. She begins to speak of him to all that will listen to her as she now has seen and has been waiting for this redemption of Jerusalem. And so we understand here that Anna has this incredible place of sharing the love of Christ with others. Here's what's interesting to me. If you just think about Simeon and Anna. Simeon, you read all about his response, and then we just kind of blew through it pretty quick, but it's all about a personal consolation of something he needed. He wanted to be comforted by God. And so when he saw Christ, he lets out this praise of a personal thing that God did for him. Now, when Anna sees the same baby Jesus, she also thanks God for what she saw, but she immediately begins to speak about God to others. And I think there's just something we could take away from that is that sometimes as you're reading the scripture, you're communing with Christ, you're devoting yourself to the Lord. Sometimes God just gives you something for you. It's just like, you know what? I needed that. Today I was having a hard day, and as I was reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit began to enlighten my mind and my heart towards these verses. They're just, it's just like God was just speaking to me. And that might be a little bit more like a Simeon experience where you're just like, you're just so thankful for the way that God faithfully is revealing himself to you. And there's other times that you get a word from the Lord as you study the scriptures and you know the scripture and, and you hear and see something, you're like, you know what? I got to speak to somebody else about this. I, I need to take what God's showing me through the Bible. I want to speak to someone else. That's a little bit more what Anna's doing. She's like, I've got to go tell somebody. I got to go share with someone else. I've, I've got to give thanks to God, but I want to speak of him to all who are waiting for this redemption of Israel. Both are beautiful responses to Christ. Sometimes we're just personally encouraged. And sometimes we become a personal witness to share what we're learning with others. Another thought here would be that both Simeon and Anna were a source of encouragement while the rest of the establishment wanted to kill Jesus. It's a little bit of a reminder that Simeon and Anna give us hope that God always has a remnant of faithful witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. You might feel like today that our world and our culture is trying to snuff out the Christmas story, but there's always faithful men and women who are pointing to Christ and say, no, 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 it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Listen to what J.C. Ryle writes about this, quote, it is a cheering thought that God never leaves himself entirely without a witness. As small as his believing church may sometimes be, the gates of hell shall never completely prevail against it. The true church may be driven into the wilderness and be scattered like a little flock, but it never dies. There was a lot in Sodom. There was an Obadiah in Ahab's household and a Daniel in Babylon, and a Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. And in the last days of the Jewish church, when its iniquity was almost full, there was godly people like Simeon and Anna who were even here in Jerusalem. What an encouragement to us this morning to know that there's always faithful men and women who hold high the name of Christ at Christmas time who are unashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, what are you doing on Christmas Day? What are you doing 40 days after Christmas? I hope that you're going to be blessed by your focus being on this passage, thinking through, I don't have to suffer the Christmas blues this year. I'm filled with wonder and grace at the Messiah. 
I hope that you'll be both personally encouraged by the truth of the gospel and that you'll also be ready to share that gospel like Anna did with others. Just a couple of last-minute thoughts here, this take-home section. Just think about this. Have you received the circumcision of Christ this Christmas? Spent a lot of time unpacking the significance of that. That all points to a heart that's been changed by the glory of Christ. Has your heart been circumcised? Number two, are you ready to now depart from this world? Or is there something else that you're just wanting to see? Is there something else you long for more than seeing Christ? Or can you honestly say, if you are in Christ today, you know what? I've seen Jesus. I'm ready to depart. Just like Simeon, I've seen it. I've been blessed. I've been changed. I'm ready for heaven. Number three, how can you better speak out about the comfort and redemption that Christ provides? How could you maybe be a little bit more like Anna this Christmas, that not only do you take it in and appreciate it, but you want to speak about it to somebody else? Even in this sermon, God's placed on your heart, you know what? Tomorrow, on Christmas Day, I'm going to speak out about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because I want to live for Him each and every day, today, tomorrow, and 40 days after Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to dig in Luke chapter 2 and maybe see some new observations from our study of the presentation of Christ at the temple on that, uh, that 40th day. And to think about Simeon's response of being blown away, ready to depart in peace from this world, filled with the consolation of Israel, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Thank you for the light and the glory of Christ. God, thank you for Anna's thankfulness as well, her life of devotion, living there at the temple, always in the presence of our Lord, praying and fasting. And as she saw Christ that day, 40 days after Christmas, how she was so blessed, so grateful, so thankful that she couldn't wait to speak about what she had seen in the redemption of Jerusalem, to speak about Jesus. God, would you help us today as we leave this Christmas Eve morning here on the Lord's Day? Would you help us just to be overwhelmed with grace and wonder that the God-man, Jesus Christ, that as Christ kept your law perfectly, he became our perfect substitute, dying in our place, redeeming us from the curse of our sin, bringing us into a personal relationship with you. God, I pray if there be someone here today that doesn't understand the gospel message, that you would open their heart to the beauty of Jesus and that this Christmas they may truly be able to worship the babe who became a man who died and was raised again as we also anticipate him coming back that as Christ returns at any moment, we would be ready to depart and to be with him. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.